Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uprise Radio and 3CR are produced on the lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded. We live and work on stolen land. This is Uprise Radio, and that was new single Waiting from Melbourne band Foggy Notion. A new album, their second release, is out September 19th. This episode of Uprise Radio will touch on sexual harassment. If these discussions are triggering for you, please tune out now. On March the 15th this year, around 110,000 women and their allies marched across Australia to demand the government take strong and effective action to address men's violence against women. On September 25th, 2020, hundreds of thousands had taken to the streets to demand a similar seriousness from the government in tackling climate change. Both times, the desire of the community and the supporting voices of experts were ignored by the Morrison government, whose attitude towards expert advice on politically charged issues appears dependent on the ideological proximity of the advisors. With regards to climate, meaningful investment in renewable energy is out, but if you think the Great Barrier Reef can be saved by flying millionaire donors over it in helicopters, we'll give you 500 million without you even asking for it. In regards to community health and safety, the painstaking work of Sexual Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins and the hundreds of bodies and individuals who made submissions to the Respect at Work inquiry, all of that expertise can be ignored. Meanwhile, the catastrophic miscommunication of vaccine safety can be blamed on the expert advice of Atagi, whom Morrison couldn't possibly ignore like he has many others. Clearly, Morrison picks and chooses whose advice to listen to and when. The painful irony of Morrison reading aloud letters he received from sexual assault survivors at last week's National Women's Safety Summit was crystal clear for anyone who remembers how long it took the same man to read the lengthy letter of accusations against his former Attorney General, Christian Porter. One person, who pays perhaps an uncomfortable level of attention to the words and actions of Scott Morrison is our guest today, columnist and contributing editor at The Monthly, Rachel Withers. Rachel, thanks heaps for joining us on Uprise Radio. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to the chat. So first off, we should say congratulations because you've recently been awarded the Mumbrella Columnist of the Year for your work. Uh, A warm congratulations there. Thank you very much. 
And yeah. much of that, uh, the last few years, focuses on the work of the federal government. And I know you wrote uh, last week uh, about Scott Morrison giving the keynote speech at the National Women's Safety Summit. Um, his decision to do this was described by the ages Christine Zwicker as an act of chutzpah not seen since the day Tony Abbott appointed himself Minister for Women. Were you surprised that Scott Morrison wanted this gig? Look, not surprised. Um, he, he does tend to uh, like to speak on these issues and, and he tries to say the right words and, and he wants to be seen to be at the forefront of these things. But as you've noted, it was really an act of chutzpah. Um, they just keep outdoing themselves on this um, because really since that really, really peak moment back in, in March with the Enough is Enough uh, protests, we really haven't seen the government follow through on, on anything that it's had to say. You know, Morrison has tried to say the right words after getting them wrong, um, but, you know, his actions over and over betray him. And that's something that pretty much every major activist in this space pointed out as he was speaking and after he spoke that, you know, we haven't seen any tangible action. In fact, we've seen the government specifically fail to implement some of the things that have been asked of it and that it's said it's going to, to implement. And you could just pick out hundreds of little things that Morrison's done, even over the past few months, you know, as you know, like not properly reading or responding to the Porter allegations, uh, the things he's said, you know, the, the as a father kind of moments, all these little things that, that show that he doesn't quite get it. But yeah, he still wants to be the one to deliver the keynote speech at, at the Women's Safety Summit. Uh, it's a summit that was called in response to, to all of these issues. I think what people would have really rather to see from him was some concrete action rather than yet more words. And, you know, it's speaking rather than listening yet again. I think, um, sorry, you Oh, I was just going to say, taking up a lot of space in, you know, a time where probably it's important for him to take action and, and as you said, to listen, you know, mm. sort of perpetually taking up a lot of the space or, and centering discussions around these things, you know, where he becomes central to the discussion of how he responds rather than actually what so many women are asking for. Yeah. And I mean, my, my thoughts on that day was really what, what did he think he was going to achieve by speaking yet again? You know, he's had a few goes at, at saying like, you know, this is not okay and, and I now understand what women go through and women should be safe. And he's had a few goes at it and it's clear women are not buying it until they actually see the actions. So I don't know what he hoped to achieve by yet again centering himself. And, yes, saying the right words, if you read the speech, it's a good speech, but all you have to do is look at everything he hasn't done. And I think, you know, with, with Scott Morrison, that when somebody writes a speech for him, it can sound like, he is saying the right words and it appears that anytime he goes off that pre-written speech that's kind of when we sort of see a little bit of the real Scott Morrison and you know I think alarm bells kind of go off about uh, you know the kind of leader that we do have but I guess I, I'm interested um, you know perhaps Rachel like what what are some of the kind of decisions you think that the federal government could make in response to to what's led up to the summit and to the summit itself and maybe I guess as well just sort of commenting on you know it's not just the the Liberal Party and and you know the, some of the, the leadership there but also you know the main opposition the Labor Party and what some of their responses have been. Yeah well I think the key one that that made 
Morrison's words particularly outrageous was the Respect at Work uh, report, which, you know, famously sat in the Attorney General's office for, for over a year um, without being touched. They blamed it on the pandemic, but, you know, they managed to get plenty of other things done in that time. And they finally accepted you know, all the recommendations in the report, either wholly in part or in principle in April when things were really bad for them um, in terms of the polls and, and just the political temperature. And then chose to, when they finally actually introduced legislation the week before the summit, to only implement a handful of the recommendations. The, there was a few in there that were really important. Um, they did implement a change so that sexual harassment is now considered a is considered serious misconduct and is grounds for firing someone, which is just staggering that that wasn't the case before. But there was this key recommendation that was really central to the report, really central to the ideas of the report, which was about um, preventing sexual harassment, not just punishing it, but preventing it. And that was a positive duty on employers, like a legal obligation to take all active steps to prevent it. But like we, we have these kind of things with um, workplace health and safety, uh, sexual harassment hasn't been considered on the same level. Uh, and there was a, a recommendation there that, that there should be a positive duty on employers. And that's the one that the government just, you know, it said was too hard, it was too complicated. Clearly, I think their, their business mates probably wouldn't want more positive duties on them. They already are not fund of, um, you know, the, the workplace health and safety ones. And that's, you know, that was so critical to the Respect at Work report. No, just yeah, to expand on that change from the way that sexual mm-hmm. harassment was formally dealt with within an organisation to making it part of health and safety. How, do you know how it was dealt with or how it's dealt with currently because they haven't introduced this change to the, to the legislation? And why is it, you know, why wouldn't um, sexual security or bodily security be the same as any other type of uh, harm or damage that can happen to your body in the workplace? Is there a cultural element at play here that it's been put into a kind of a different basket in or in institutional institutions, the way they deal with sexual assault historically? Uh, you know, it can't just be about businesses not wanting it. Like surely there's a cultural aspect to this as well. As somehow sexual assault is different. Or... Well, they do actually fall under different uh, pieces of legislation. So the, the Sex Discrimination Act, uh, this is so the Workplace Health and Safety Act, and they, they wanted to, that what was recommended was that we would change uh, the Sex Discrimination Act, so that a positive duty would be created for this. It's a separate positive duty. I imagine this has just been on the agenda for less time. It, it shouldn't have been. You know, it's an issue that's faced women in the workplace since the day they stepped foot in the workplace. It's not something that our society really started talking about properly until, you know, the, the first big global Me Too movement in 2018, which is actually what kicked off the Respect at Work inquiry. And so it just wasn't considered, d- despite the fact, you know, it can have a, a serious toll on, on people's mental health. It, it genuinely affects like productivity and all these other, other things that are obviously important to the government, but it just wasn't considered, you know, on the same level as important high-vis safe equipment and things like that that have been on the agenda just for that much longer. And perhaps you could you could say that the union movement hasn't focused strongly enough on these things. They've been great with with health and safety and um, and workers' rights, but perhaps not a strong enough focus on on women. Um, and you know, there wouldn't be one union that would 
that would look at women across all sectors. There might be, you know, fabulous representation for different kinds of industries coming from different unions, but not someone looking at women across the board. I I mean, just extending from that is that, so one of the recommendations uh, of the respect at work was that unions would be able to bring claims to court uh, and also shoulder the cost in doing that and the risk. Mm. Um, The government did pass that one over. And so, yeah, what, I was just wondering if you could speak why you think they passed that over, do you, th- you know, or, or what was behind that decision or? You know, I think it probably ties into um, this idea of, of the positive duty or just putting any kind of duties on the employer. Um, there was this, you know, idea that women shouldn't have to bear the costs of bringing this forward and, and not having the onus on women anymore. And if you're not putting a positive duty um, on the employers to prevent it, you're also not going to put a, you know, a, an obligation on the employers to help shoulder the costs of dealing with something that they didn't do anything to prevent. Um, and it's just yet again, I think, leaving it with women. It's a it's a very difficult thing to, to complain and to report someone and to take action as a victim. There's very little emphasis here on in any way easing that process for victims. The fact that they can now get rid of perpetrators is something but again it's not actually helping women with the process of coming forward or with preventing it from happening in the first place mm. so that um positive onus that onus on them to protect against the possibility of uh, sexual assault would be a much better or higher level of workplace training simpler processes for women and making you know normalizing the process for women making a complaint in the same way they'd make a complaint about dangerously stacked boxes you know it might be about a totally inappropriate colleague rather than it being loaded with all of this you know career threat and you know we've seen at the very top levels of government about how women who make accusations are treated you know from a career perspective so I guess you know there is some kind of normalizing uh, that moving it under an OHS bracket would have as well mm, mm. look the, the other thing uh, that was sort of overlooked in there was that there was you know the Fair Work Commission was supposed to be there sort of to to aid employers in taking those positive steps and it wasn't just going to be you know to employers you're on your own there was going to be steps to take and and help and of course that's something that costs money uh that's something that involves the fair work commission even more in people's workplaces and yet they just didn't seem interested in in any of that i wanted to ask you more broadly about the government's attitude towards sexism and i know that you know you've done your master's in kind of, you know, cultural reporting. So I think you're, you're kind of in a unique position to answer this question. I mean, so much of the debate has focused on the government's sexism and sexual violence on a very personal level, you know, from the accusations against Christian Porter, Andrew Lamming, Barnaby Joyce, the staff of the assault of Brittany Higgins, the man masturbating on the female MP's desk, the sexist comments of Linda Reynolds, Michelle Landry, Tina McQueen, what do you think, you know, that the March back in March, what it, it was about respect at work, but it was also about violence against uh, men's violence against women in general. And what do you think this like consistently sexist and denialist attitude of the nation's highest governing body, what impact do you think that has on smaller average workplaces and institutions in homes around the country? Like what is the cultural impact of these I don't know, these individual kind of avatars of this archaic sexism. Yeah, look, 
I think it just normalizes it. Whether it's the more extreme allegations that we've heard against someone like Christian Porter that can just be kind of shrugged away, or whether it's, you know, as you mentioned, some of these comments from some of the liberal women, I'd kill to be sexually harassed from Tina McQueen, who you mentioned, or, you know, or even just Morrison's own personal brand of sexism, which I think is kind of the most insidious. It's that no one thinks he's a sexual harasser. He's That's not his brand, but it's that kind of that, like, it's the other as a father comment. It's that ownership of women. It's that. You know, it, when he said, I spoke to my wife, it's like yeah. only when a woman explains sexual violence, only when I think about it through the lens of my daughters can I comprehend why this is a problem. And it's like, yeah, well, like why yeah. is you just a person can't comprehend it as a problem? And then, and then, you know, he jumps on talkback radio with, with the shock jocks and he's like, oh, you know, blokes don't always get it right. And he puts on this. I'm just a bloke, what do I know? You know, it really normalises for the entire nation. You know, blokes just don't get it right. It's fine if, you know, you say the wrong thing. And, you know, as much as so many of us have no respect for him, he is the prime minister of the country. There are people in this in this country who see him as the, the figurehead of the nation and he just allows people to go on with this really backwards attitude he's kind of you know there's also the, the bullying we've heard from him the fact you know the way he treats women like Julia Banks and and stuff as well but it's really just that casual sexism that's sort of it's just it's sort of that very Australian whatever she'll be right mate and it's just no matter what he says at the National Women's Safety Summit when he's standing in a room full of of women's anti-violence campaigners the persona that he embodies, really, that says to the nation, like, this is fine. Now time for a quick announcement. You're tuned to Uprise Radio on Community Radio 3CR. We're chatting with Rachel Withers, columnist and contributing editor at The Monthly, discussing the empty words and actions of Scott Morrison, Respect at Work and the Women's Summit. A content warning for those just joining us. This episode does touch on sexual harassment. If this is triggering for you, please tune out now. It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. new to Melbourne I found a food not bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable yeah I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch we 
I guess, rescue food that would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. I wonder, you know, Rachel, what do you think, um, what's the responsibility of other men, do you think, in Australia? Like, I don't hold much hope that Scott Morrison is going to provide that leadership there. You know, I'm not sure that Anthony Albanese or the Labor Party are either, because I think we need other male voices that, you know, have a profile to be arguing to say, well, no, that's not, men don't just, not just getting it wrong. Um, you know, we need to make sure we're getting it right. We need to listen and make comments that are going to be going on the right track. Yeah, like absolutely men have to be part of the solution. Like ultimately only men can be the solution because it's not, you know, women who are, who are doing this. And I think it's about paying more than just lip service. It's not just Scott Morrison who only pays lip service to the issue. You know, there are plenty of, of male allies who, or, or, you know, supposed allies who are more than happy to go to a, a protest with a sign, you know, an arrow pointing themselves saying ally. Um, but it's really genuinely elevating women and making this a priority every single day and, and not, not being performative about it. It's just something that's going to take so much work and it has to be, you know, it has to be central in so many ways to people's lives to, to call it out and to live it properly. Rachel, I, I'm curious to know what you make of the appointment of Lorraine Finlay as the incoming Human Rights Commissioner. You know, Finlay is someone who's previously spoken out against the broadening of laws regarding sexual assault and harassment, arguably undermining victims um, and their claims, and a former member of the IPA. Yeah, look, it's just one of those perfect examples of, of the way the Liberal Party treats these issues. You know, it was something they quietly announced on the eve of the National Women's Safety Summit. And, you know, it could have slipped under the radar. Fortunately, a few people called it out, Grace Tame in particular, because this is a woman who has spoken against affirmative consent laws, worked with figures like Bettina Arendt. It's them thinking, we'll appoint a woman, that's fine. It's exactly, you know, the wrong sort of woman. Like it's it's the woman who actively undermines progress and undermines um, other women. And it, it just, yet again, spoke volumes. The government saying the right words when they're standing up on the stage uh, taking the keynote speech at the Women's Safety Summit, but then quietly just actively working against the cause uh, in the background. I um, wanted to ask you about the proximity of journalists to power. And I know that you've been covering uh, the federal beat now for some time uh, for the monthly and um, for other publications as well. And I you know, it was, it was really uncomfortable at times, particularly during the Christian Porter debate, how many uh, media figures came out in strident defence of his privacy and his career as though these things were much more important uh, than the life of his accuser or the family of that 
that woman. Um, and I just wonder, you know, like we, we, we talk a lot about the undue influence that business has on politics and money has on power, but Canberra is a bubble. The, the, the press gallery lives in that bubble, you know, for, for big parts of the year. Do you think there's an issue around particularly the re reporting of the misdemeanors of powerful figures and the closeness of those that report on them? Have you seen that in your time on the beat? Yeah, look, I mean, there, uh, there were, was one particular journalist when it came to Christian Porter, uh, you know, who had been very outspoken about the Brittany Higgins issue and, um, you know, willing to, willing to attack the government. But then when it came to a member of the government who they were a close personal friend of, you know, everything was different. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I do think there is that sort of unfortunate closeness. Um, I think I gain a different perspective by being in Melbourne. You know, I, I don't go anywhere near Canberra. I, I watch it all through a screen um, and that gives me some, some real distance. But, yeah, certainly there are people in Canberra drinking together and seeing each other out and so many of them come from the same schools and backgrounds and even specifically the debating scene which is where so much of this backstory mm. is we hear all sorts of things about the Australian debating scene but yeah they, they come up through the same pipeline and it you know it, it is really worrying I, I just I guess I would say that I've been so grateful that there have been a couple of really major women journalists leading this really fearless women Sam Maiden in particular you know and she gets attacked by these these other journalists who are talking about who are there to defend the status quo and defend the prime minister. And yeah, I'm, I mean, it's just been a huge year for for these women journalists calling it out. The, the Four Corners team as well, just not willing to to be to be um, scared out of reporting these stories. Obviously, that's. A huge thing that um, has been part of this year as well is, is the Christian Porter defamation suit that has scared a lot of people and, and has left this kind of buried. Um, but there has just been so much bravery, I think, from, from victims and from some journalists. Mm. It is a government disturbingly easy uh, with suing journalists at the moment, isn't it? It's cool. Yeah. I wanted to ask, like, to follow on from that, um, kind of about journalism as well and you know I'm, I'm interested I guess in the kind of space that you know like the monthly and the Saturday paper and you know those publications are kind of taking up um, you know I guess very much so in Melbourne but across Australia with kind of occupying a space that was uh, sometimes you know I guess partly occupied by you know the weekend age and, and other places like that um, which are sadly you know very little kind of of interest to these days, you know, where do you kind of see those publications at, at, at the moment and, and the kind of space that they're occupying? Yeah, look, I mean, there is a, a key dedicated audience for them. They're not exactly preaching to the unconverted, but I, th I feel like there's this, there's this sense amongst the rest of the media of, or uh, the majority of the media of, of trying to, you know, create some perception of, of balance as if um you know you have to go equally hard on both sides or you have to you know yeah that, that if you're not attacking both sides that you're not actually doing it right when it, 
I'm just pleased that I get to call out the side that is worse more without, you know, anyone telling me, you know, I have to, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely willing to have a go at the Labor Party as well. Um, you know, when they, when they back down on, on taxes or climate change or, you know, um, even on this, but, you know, there is, there is one side of politics right now that is just so much worse on all of these issues. Um, and I think, yeah, it's just, it's just horrifying watching, you know, like the nine papers um, sort of try to be like the centre of mm-hmm. the the media spectrum um, when that's that's not the centre at all. This idea of, of like impartial means just, um, yeah, not really actually caring about justice. Um, mm. Yeah, so there's I mean, a right and there's a wrong, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the truth might have a left wing bias, perhaps even. Um, but yeah, no, it's I. I've never sort of been told, you know, um, how to or what to report on. Um, so I'm grateful that that these outlets exist, basically, uh, because I wouldn't really feel comfortable working many other places right now. <laughs> There's a great essay by Rebecca Solnit called Preaching to the Choir, celebrating that most churches do actually preach to the converted and it's a really useful mm. thing to do. It galvanises a community. It makes them all on the same page. So we shouldn't say, oh, you're just preaching to the converted. It's a wonderful thing to do. Uh, thank you so much for joining uh, us today, Rachel. It's been really nice talking to you. I look forward yeah, to reading you to your me. work in the future. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks a lot. That's all for Uprise Radio, and to take us out today, uh, we've got classic Dolly Parton vehicle 9 to 5, but this is the original Broadway cast from the 2009 recording. Thanks to James for the suggestion. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.